Welcome to Teaching Through the Bible with Dr. Ken Sullivan. As a veteran senior pastor, Dr. Sullivan understands the importance of Bible teaching in the spiritual growth and development of God's people. Dr. Sullivan's method of teaching the Bible is to read and carefully explain each chapter and verse in clear and understandable terms so the student of the Bible gains the full understanding of God's Word. Now prepare yourself to learn and grow as Dr. Sullivan teaches through the Bible. Well, I want to welcome you to another session of Teaching Through the Bible. I'm Dr. Ken Sullivan. Today, we'll be teaching from the uh, pastoral epistles of 1 Timothy chapter 6, reading from the New International Version. So let's get right into our study today. I'm reading verses 1 and 2. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. These are the things that you are to teach and insist on. Now, I want to just unpack this whole issue of uh, slavery. Slavery was a way of life in the Roman Empire, but it was never God's will uh, to enslave innocent people. In the ancient world, there were a number of ways a person could uh, become a slave. Um, first of all, number one, survivors of lost wars often became slaves of the victors. They took what was called the spoils. That included the uh, bodies of people. Uh, number two, people who could not pay their debts became slaves to pay off debt. There were debtors' prisons, and then uh, there were uh, there was a system of laws that allowed the uh, the person, the lender, to to own the borrower until the uh, the debt was paid off completely. Sometimes, people who were destitute and in danger of starving to death sold themselves and their families into slavery in order to survive. Um, people were sometimes kidnapped. Uh, number four, uh, 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 another way that people became slaves was this infamous way of, of being kidnapped. People were kidnapped and made slaves. The, the Europeans and the Americans kidnapped Africans and made them slaves. Now, Thomas Jefferson, con uh, concerning uh, that form of slavery that uh, dominated uh, the American continent, even the North American and the South American continent and, and throughout Europe, um, but uh, particularly concerning American slavery, Thomas Jefferson, uh, one of our American presidents, who himself was a slave owner, knew that it was wrong. And he, he said, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. Jefferson died uh, just 34 years before God's judgment did fall on America. That, that thing that he feared so much uh, fell on America in the form of the Civil War. More than 700,000 Americans lost their lives in the Civil War to pay for the crime of slavery. Abraham Lincoln understood that the Civil War was divine retribution for the national sin of slavery. 
And uh, he, he said, God may will that the war, and of course the war was, was, was a bane to him. He wanted to see the war end. He wanted to see the nation healed because uh, uh, the, the Southern states had pulled away uh, from the Union because they wanted to maintain slavery. And the Northern states wanted to uh, rid the country of slavery. Uh, and so Lincoln was um, really heavily pressed over this issue and that war raged on for uh, four or five years, I think from 1961, uh, uh, from 1861 to, to uh, 1865. But, but Lincoln was really weary of the war. He was weary of seeing all of the American lives that were being lost because of the cause of the war. But he said, God may will that the war continue until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid for by another drawn with the sword. That's a direct quote from, from Lincoln. So Lincoln understood that the American Civil War was God's judgment on this nation for the, the sin of slavery. Lincoln hesitated about freeing the slaves during the Civil War because he didn't want to draw the border states into the war on the side of the South. I'll give you a little American history lesson here. Harriet Tubman, who herself had been a slave and she ran away to freedom uh, and became an abolitionist, uh, she, she warned uh, Lincoln that God would not, she, she said, and this is a direct quote from her, she said, God won't let Mr. Master Lincoln beat the South until he does the right thing. Master Lincoln, he's a great man, and I'm a poor Negro. But this Negro can tell Master Lincoln how to save money and young men. He can do it by setting the Negroes free. Now, I don't believe that slave owners and slave traders actually were, were true Christians. I, I have a real issue with this. Uh, I know that a lot of people are saying that, that you know, they were not perfect and, and so forth, but uh, I have a real issue of a person owning someone else and taking everything that they own and then claiming the cause of Christ. Um, in fact, abolitionists used the Bible to condemn slavery and slaveholders. Exodus chapter 21, verse 16 says, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Again, that's Exodus 21, 16. That's exactly what the Europeans and Arabs uh, did to the Africans. They stole them and they sold them. And that was a, a terrible, uh, uh, terrible experience for anybody to experience. To have themselves, their children, uh, their wives to be taken and sold and, and sauntered away from them is a terrible sin. This passage says that both the kidnapper and the purchaser should be put to death for the, for the crime of, of uh, kidnapping people and enslaving them. Now, you can't kidnap a person, make him your slave, oppress him, take his wages, sell his family and all he has, uh, while at the same time calling yourself a Christian. That wasn't Jesus's way. You can't buy a helpless kidnapped victim, force him to be your slave, make him work for nothing, keep him in bondage, and all the while calling yourself a Christian. I have a real problem with that. A true Christian would try to help the victim of slavery, not further uh, victimize them, not further add to their woes. They would go and, 
and, and help them out of their situation. So I think we need to stop wa whitewashing people who were complicit in kidnap and murder by saying that, that they weren't perfect, but they were Christians. I, uh, I don't think that their behavior lined up with what the Bible defines as Christianity. Uh, I think we dirty the name and the teachings of Christ and the apostles with, with such falsehoods. Speaking about American slave trading uh, brand of Christianity, uh, Frederick Douglass, an escaped slave and a, and a, uh, turn, uh, a slave and, and, and a great orator who was also an abolitionist, uh, he said this, I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, uh, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. I look upon it as the climax of all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, and the grossest of all libels. Now, uh, Frederick Douglass wasn't talking about uh, Christianity all over the country. He was just talking about the Christian, the brand of Christianity that uh, countenanced slavery and even encouraged slavery and was complicit in enslaving people and uh, adding to their woes and their plight. Uh, the, the brand of Christianity uh, that encouraged slavery and even fought in the war to maintain it. No one who participated in kidnapping people and buying and selling or possessing them could honestly call themselves true Christian. That was Frederick Douglass's opinion. Uh, and I happen to agree with him. Depriving innocent people of their freedom and rights was in itself completely unchristian. Even without considering all the other inhumane tactics that were necessary to keep a slave in bondage and profit from their misery. The Bible describes followers of Christ as people who are merciful, sympathetic, and empathetic. Philippians chapter 3 verse 18 says, there are many who walk along the Christian road who are really enemies of the cross of Christ. Their future is eternal loss for their God is their appetite. They are proud of what they should be ashamed of and all they think about is this life here on earth. This includes American slaveholders or European slaveholders or whoever would kidnap someone and make them a slave. And, and we have uh, human trafficking going on today. It's a problem. Uh, but I don't think that the people who are engaging in human trafficking today uh, is uh, trying to uh, make it respectable and acceptable by calling themselves Christians. No, they're not. So I think that there's a problem in attaching the name of Christ to those who would uh, victimize innocent, helpless people. They were so blind, uh, those who participated in the American form of slavery, that they fought a war and killed hundreds of thousands of people to keep slaves. And they even prayed to God to help them win an unjust war. Today, their descendants proudly wave a flag that symbolizes that spiritual blindness. Paul said they're proud of what they should be ashamed of. The teachings of Christ nullifies and abolishes slavery and discrimination among the Christians and raises the slave to the level of an employee or a, or a family member, uh, an employee and a family member, because we're all brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless to our national origin 
or uh, our ethnic origin. When a slave master became a true Christian, his slave became employees and brothers and sisters in Christ. There was, they were uh, slaves in name only. After that, slave owner came to the light of Christ. They were not slaves in status of function, only in name. And that's why Paul was able to speak to those, uh, those uh, slave-owning Christians and told them, uh, the, told the, 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 the slaves to, to love their masters. But this is, this is a, a, an employer-employee situation, but still using the name of slavery. Verse 2 of our text says, The believing masters of slaves who are believers are dear to them and are devoted to the welfare of their slave. In the book of Philemon, a slave named Onesimus ran away from his Christian master and became a Christian under Paul's ministry. Paul wrote to Philemon about this issue. Philemon was uh, the Christian owner of Onesimus, and Paul told him to receive Onesimus back no longer as a slave, but as a brother. Paul wrote in, Philippi, in Philemon's uh, 1 and 15 through 16, perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. That's how those who were slave owners would treat their slaves. They would uh, raise them from the status of being just a common slave to being a brother in Christ. And if they benefit, benefited from their work, they, uh, it was an employer-employee re uh, uh, relationship. Now, the influence of the Bible and true Christianity brought an end to slavery. Um, so how should we apply Paul's words about slaves and masters today, this passage? Well, as Christians, we should be good, honest employees, especially if our employer is a Christian. We should consider our employer worthy of full respect. That's what Paul said so that God's name and the apostles' teaching would not be slandered. So God's name and the apostles' teaching would be slandered by people who are slothful and lazy and uh, who steal time and, and don't do what they're supposed to do and then call themselves a Christian. That gives a bad odor to the, to the, uh, to the name of Christian. Christian employers uh, should be served even better because they are fellow believers and devoted to the welfare of their employees. That's what Paul said. They are devoted to the welfare of their employees. When you have a Christian, a true Christian as a believer, he is going to be devoted to the welfare of the employees. Christian employers should be fair and just and look out for the welfare of their employees, just as Paul suggested here. They should treat their Christian employees like employed family members, okay? So that's how we look at that passage that Paul gave to us um, in the scriptures through the power of the Holy Spirit about slave masters and slave owners. They're no longer slave masters in the traditional sense. They become employers and employees. Now, verses three through five. If anyone teaches otherwise, and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Those who oppose the teachings of Christ are, Paul said, they are conceited and they are without understanding. Paul said that they are spreaders of controversies, spreaders of strife and evil suspicions and constant friction. That is those who oppose the teachings of Christ. Uh, they've been robbed of the truth and they think that godliness is a way to get money. So in uh, Acts chapter eight, Simon the sorcerer saw Peter laying hands on people and those people were receiving the Holy Spirit. Um, Simon the sorcerer saw the, the gift of, of laying on of hands and the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon the apostles as something that he could purchase. Uh, and so he asked to buy it from Peter and Peter re rebuked him sternly for it. So uh, our Christianity, our godliness is not a means of gain. It is not a way to make money. It is a way into the kingdom of God. It is a way of godliness and righteousness. And we should be contented with that. Now, verses six through eight said, but godliness with contentment is great gain. But we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. So to be content with godliness is to be very rich indeed. We have Christ and we are aware of all that we have along with Christ. He's given us all things to enjoy, the Bible says. And, and we have a rich present and we have a rich future. We are going to live with him forever. We have eternal life. Uh, we're going to have a new glorified bodies and we're going to live in a perfect world. Uh, and so that understanding, and not only that, having fellowship with God here in this present world and having fellowship with the people of God, uh, we are very rich. Even if we have no money, we are rich because our names are written down in the Lamb Book of Life. Paul suggests that we should work toward being satisfied with this life's simple necessities. Now, that's not to say that we should not have aspirations, we should not have goals, we should not have dreams uh, of, of owning possessions. That's okay as long as we keep it in right priority. Christ should be first over everything. Jesus said a man's life does not consist in an abundance of the possessions which he possesses. That's Luke chapter 12 and verse 15. One day we will leave all of our possessions behind anyway, uh, and we will go to be with Christ, which is far better. Now I'm reading verses 9 and 10. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves through with many griefs or many sorrows, the King James said. People who are ambitious to get rich will fall into temptation, Paul warns. So we should not be anxious 
to get uh, to get rich. I mean, we, that should not be our priority in life. Uh, certainly, in this country, there are many opportunities, and in many other countries, there are opportunities for us to do well. And God will prosper you uh, when you do well, when you put Him um, first in your life. God will begin to bless in your life. And, and as you study the word of God, God will give you the wisdom on how to manage your resources if you're obedient to what you're being taught by the word of God. You're going to prosper. But uh, chasing after riches should not be our priority. Uh, it only leads to temptation and a snare. Uh, Paul said those who, who want to get rich, those who are anxious about getting rich, uh, they fall into temptation. Uh, they fall into uh, entrapment. They will be beset by foolish and harmful desires that ruin and destroy people. And, and he says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And the King James says the love of money is the root of all evil. Well, I, I think that uh, uh, the uh, New International Version uh, is, is a little bit more accurate. I think it's all kinds of evil um, because money is like a God and it can get us a lot of things. Uh, and if we get consumed with that, um, there will be all kinds of evils unfolding in our lives and drawing us away from Christ. So we have to be careful about the pursuit of wealth. Earnestness for money has caused some to wander away from the faith, Paul says and pierce themselves through with many sorrows and many griefs. Oh, money has God-like qualities. Uh, it can get you much of what God can get you. And, and so because it has such power and such ability to, uh, to obtain things, uh, people become ensnared by it, enamored by it, uh, and enslaved by it. Uh, and that's why Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money. Uh, mammon, the King James says, and mammon uh, certainly means money. That's Luke chapter 16, 13. We have to put God first above all. Money has the power to meet many needs, and so it has a, 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 an alluring charm about it. Solomon said, money is the answer for everything, and I think that that uh, is a general generality uh, money can get so much, can do so much. Uh, it can buy influence. It can buy material things. Uh, it can buy respect and honor. Uh, and, and it can really elevate a person's status. Um, so it is, these, it is this thing that has these godlike qualities that allure people and ensnare people. So money must be our servant and not our master. Money may be your master if, if you put pursuit of it above the pursuit of God. It may be your master. We have to be careful about this. Money may be your master if you trust it more than you trust God. And thirdly, money may be your master if you can't give God his fair share of what you earn. If it means so much to you that uh, Jesus can't be Lord over you and your money, then money just may well be your master. So we have to be careful and keep money in its rightful place. Now, verses 11 and 12, I'm reading. But you, man of God, flee from all this 
and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul warns people to run from the pursuit of money, but to pursue righteousness. The Bible tells us that we should exercise ourselves to godliness. So we are to pursue righteousness. Paul said we are to pursue godliness. Paul says we are to pursue faith. We are to pursue love. We are to pursue endurance. And we are to pursue gentleness. Paul names these uh, six things that we are to pursue. And the Bible tells us to exercise ourselves, or that is to practice being godly. That is to practice doing what God says. And in our prayers, we should pray that God will give us endurance and that God will, will make us more and more like him. Every day, we should pray that God will fill our minds with his thoughts and fill our hearts with his will and fill us to overflowing with his spirit. Uh, every day, we need to be renewed and refreshed in the things of God. Now, in verse 12, Paul says, fight the good fight of faith. Fighting the good fight of faith is living a submitted and committed life to Christ, day in and day out. It takes faith to obey God in the face of temptation, and it takes faith to follow God and serve him and obey him day in and day out. Uh, when the days are good, when the days are bad. We want to maintain our walk with Christ, our submission to Christ, and our obedience to Christ. In verse 12, Paul says, we are called to eternal life. We lay hold to eternal life, of course, through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm reading verses 13 through 16. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. Paul commands us to keep obeying the teachings of Christ blamelessly until Christ comes. And Paul reminds us, of course, that Christ is going to come in his own time. When it's God, according to God's timetable, Jesus will come. It seems like it's been a long time, over 2,000 years. Uh, people have been waiting. Uh, and I've been waiting for him most of my lifetime. I've been serving God at the, at the time of this recording for uh, nearly 50 years, going on 50 years. And I'm looking for Christ and I expect him to come. Uh, but he will come in his own time. And then Paul reminds us that God is the giver of life. Paul says that God alone is immortal. He is the only one who has eternal life within himself. Now, the angels and the souls of people are also immortal, 
and our resurrected bodies will be immortal, but our immortality comes from God. He is the only one who has immortality in and of himself. Paul reminds us that God lives in unapproachable light. No mortal, no mortal being can look upon God in his glory. No mortal has seen God, Paul says, uh, the Father, or can see him and live. No one has seen God in all his glory. Now, some have seen manifestations of God. Moses saw the trail of God's glory in Exodus 33 and 20, uh, through 23. And, and Moses saw God manifested in the, in the fire, in the, the burning bush, the bush that didn't, would not consume. Uh, Abraham saw God in human form in Genesis chapter 18. God was manifested in the flesh through Jesus Christ, 1 Timothy 3.16. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1.15 says that. Um, and we uh, will see uh, God face to face. That's something we look forward to. No one has seen him in his full glory and lived but we will see him in his full glory in the future. Those of us who are believers, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and 12 says that. Christ will appear in God's own time, Paul says. And so we might bear that in mind. Now I'm reading verses 17 through 19. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And Paul wants us to know that that eternal life, that life which is to come, is truly life. Wealth is a powerful tool that can be used to do good or to do bad. You can do a lot of good with it, or you can do a lot of evil with it. Paul is telling those saints who find themselves to be wealthy to occupy themselves with doing a lot of good. Paul said they should be rich in good wealth and good works. They should be rich in doing good deeds. Uh, I don't know about you, but I don't have a lot of money, but uh, I want to be rich in good deeds. I want to have the reputation with God um, that I have done much good for many people. Um, I want to be kind and generous, and I want to reflect the light of Christ in my life, the way that I treat people. I want to respect everybody, whether they are poor, whether they are rich, uh, and I want to be kind to everybody, whether or not they're kind to me. Uh, and so certainly I have to pray to God for his help through the Holy Spirit uh, to represent him as I should, to let his light shine through me, for that is my endeavor. Rich people should be generous and willing to share, Paul said. Don't hoard money just to leave it to somebody else because we only have so much time and uh, we can only spend so much money. 
So the best thing to do is to honor God with our wealth and to do as much as we can for as many people as we can. If you help the poor, you are lending to the Lord and he will repay. That's Proverbs 19, 17. Verse 19 says, using wealth to help others is laying up treasures in heaven and building a foundation for the coming age. What we do in this life affects how we live in the next life. There will be special rewards for those who are rich in good deeds, in good works. Wealthy people should also work at being humble, the Bible says. Wealth can incite pride uh, because of the power and the respect that it commands. So people who are wealthy have to uh, resist. You have to uh, be determinate about this. You have to be deliberate about resisting arrogance and, and embracing humility. Wealth is very uncertain and nothing to place the weight of our hopes upon. So don't let wealth compete with God. Keep your hope anchored in the Lord. You know, the, the Bible doesn't say that it's wrong to be wealthy. It can be a blessing uh, to be prosperous and rich and wealthy. It can be a blessing if we have our feet planted in the soil of Christ. Uh, and if we keep ourselves um, in the goodness and the righteousness of God and we do what he says with our wealth. Rich and poor people should remember that money is not the source of our supply. Money is never the source of our supply. God is our source. God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment, the Bible says. So enjoy life and uh, lift up as many people as you possibly, uh, possibly can while you're enjoying life, whether you're rich or whether you're poor. Helping others is one of the most joyful and gratifying experience in life, experiences in life. So uh, we should work to... Uh, to do all that we can to help as many people as we can, to be a, as big a blessing as we can. Now, I'm reading verses 20 and 21. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing departed from the faith. Grace be with you all. What has God entrusted to your care? Is it your faith? Is it your Christian life? Is it your family? Is it your church? Paul is saying here, guard it carefully. Whatever God has entrusted to your care, we ought to guard it carefully. Certainly our faith and our walk with Christ. Verse 20 says, turn away from godless chatter, meaningless talk, and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, or the King James says science, I believe. The most pervasive idea that calls itself science and opposes Christ and the Bible today is the theory of evolution. I say theory of evolution because it's being presented as fact. It is presented everywhere, not as a theory, but as a fact. You see it everywhere in nature shows. If you go to museums and books all over the place, it is being presented as fact. Evolution Hear me well. Evolution is a superstition. It is a superstitious religious theory that takes a set of facts and jumps to a wrong conclusion. No one who understands the claims of evolution 
and the claims of the Bible can believe both. You have to accept one as true and reject the other as false. They contradict each other. The Bible claims that God is the creator of all things. The Bible claims that death resulted from Adam's sin. The Bible claims that everyone is born in sin as a result of Adam's sin. The Bible claims that Jesus Christ came into the world to die to atone for or pay for our sins. The Bible claims that Jesus died and rose again to save us from our sins. Evolution claims that death began with the first single cell organism. Death is evolution's mechanism for selecting forms of life that are more adaptable to the environment. Evolution suggests that there is no creator. Evolution claimed that life came into existence by accident, beginning from a single cell organism. Evolution concludes that there is no sin and therefore no savior from sin. The product of evolution is atheism. The whole Christian system of beliefs rests upon the fact that death entered the world through sin and that Jesus Christ came to destroy sin and death. Now, let me close by reiterating Paul's last instructions. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge or science, which some have professed and in so doing have departed from the faith. Superstitious beliefs like evolution lead people away from faith, not to it. Don't fall into these false ideas and turn away from your faith. Be careful. Well, that brings us to the end of 1 Timothy chapter 6. In our next teaching through the Bible session, I'll be uh, I'll begin uh, teaching the pastoral epistle of Paul to Titus. Now, if you live in the Indianapolis area, I'd like to invite you to come visit us at our New Direction Church, um, where my son Kenneth Sullivan Jr. is the is the pastor. Our East Side campus is located. Uh, on the corner of 38th and Hawthorne Streets. And our North Campus is at 86th Street and Hague Road. Uh, I hope to see you at one of our services. We'd love to have you come and worship with us and, and uh, come and fellowship with us around the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So now until next time, I look forward to seeing you at another session of Teaching Through the Bible. God bless you and I hope you were blessed by this uh, broadcast. Thank you for tuning in to Teaching Through the Bible with Dr. Kim Sullivan. We hope this program has benefited you in your Christian walk. For a free download of this program and to browse Dr. Sullivan's books, videos, and audio titles, visit our website at EmergeCurriculum.com. Please tune into our next teaching session on Vision Stream Network or listen on demand from our podcast. Trust you've enjoyed this teaching. I want you to know that my book, Teach Me About Heaven, it's available on Amazon.com, or you can get it at www.EmergeCurriculum.com.